The Nonprofit Hour, a weekly look at Portland's nonprofits and do-gooders, with interviews, profiles, and documentaries. You're listening to The Nonprofit Hour on xray.fm, brought to you by the Media Institute for Social Change a public interest media lab that works to inspire, empower, and engage emerging media producers. I'm Henry Leisha. This week, we'll be learning about two organizations that are preserving the Northwest's green spaces for public enjoyment, as well as a group of farmers that are using their agricultural resources to fight hunger in Oregon. First, we will speak to Ted Gilbert and Jocelyn Godey, who are involved in the development of Gateway Green, Gateway Green is Portland's newest park, located in East Portland on the site of the former Rocky Butte Jail. It's 25 acres of easily accessible, unused open space, with great trails for biking, walking, and enjoying nature. Next, we will hear a short report from producer Barb Seaman about Cape Horn Conservancy. This group of volunteers is dedicated to preserving, enhancing, and promoting the Cape Horn Trail one of the best trails to hike in the Columbia River Gorge. Finally, we will speak with John Burt, the Executive Director for Farmers Ending Hunger, an organization that increases the amount of high-quality food available to hungry local communities through a partnership of farmers, food processors, and the Oregon Food Bank. For more, we turn to our host, Phil Bussey. This is Phil Bussey. It's the Nonprofit Hour. I am happy to be joined in the studio by three people, but only two that are going to talk. Uh, Jocelyn Godey Coral is a spokesperson for the Northwest Trailers Alliance. And Ted Gilbert is a board member for the Friends of Gateway Green, which is what we're talking about today. Welcome to you both, all. Thanks for having Thank us you. in. So uh, let's start out with Gateway Green because it's it's it is not it's not known yet necessarily to uh, it is Portland's newest park correct it is exactly right Portland's newest park and we're having our official uh, opening to the public of Phase One on June twenty fourth you know and I just want to hover over that idea because it's so many parks already exist we know of Irving Park we know of Forest Park we know but. I think rarely do people think of the conception of a park. So it's really fascinating. Can you talk about how did the discussion begin and how did how does how does a park get born? Gosh, that's an amazing question. When you think historically in Portland, the great park like Laurelhurst Park, back then it was a real estate developer who was building Laurelhurst and figured I'm going to dedicate a whole bunch of land in the middle of this what's going to be a subdivision served by a streetcar and I'm going to give it to the city to be a park and that's how it was funded the model then shifted to the tax money for the parks bureau figuring out well we need a park here we need a park here this was neither of those it was really born about 11 years ago um, kind of out of necessity uh, a group of us myself uh, a lady named Linda Robinson who is the chair of Friends of Gateway Green and a couple of other dozen citizens were asked to serve on the Urban Renewal Committee for Gateway Urban Renewal District uh, uh, through the Portland Development Commission. And some amazing things were happening. And the city and metro had envisioned Gateway 
to become a regional center, like a second downtown for Portland. Amazing. Uh, this pr traditionally suburban area that had, had come into some tougher times, and it was determined it was the most park-deficient area in the entire region by the Equity Atlas. And a bunch of us were on a committee to look for park. We couldn't even come up with a 50 by 100, let alone something you could do with a park. And there wasn't any help in sight until kind of a wild idea occurred. And, and, and I just want to place our listeners where we're geographically talking here. We're talking where, where 205 and 84 uh, come together. And what's amazing, any night, if you're watching TV and you watch the weather report, you see Gateway Green literally on the map. If you follow where I-84 and I-205 come together, there's a squiggly line that is really visible. Kind of looks like a, nor a fish pointing <laughs> north and south. That is literally the 38 acres of Gateway Green. And that's amazing. So, so uh, talk to me about what those 38 acres had been. I mean, because I think most people, unfortunately, are, are using that area as an exchange on the interstates and just are, are, are there in their cars. That's right. The history of it, it's right in the shadow of Rocky Butte, which is the highest point out here. Rocky Butte is literally an extinct volcano. And once upon a time before I-205 uh, I was built, it was all connected. And that was the nature space for all of East Portland. Uh, it was uh, on top of the uh, Rocky Butte was a military academy called Hill Military Academy. And they drove their sheep down trails down Rocky Butte and they would graze down where Gateway Green is. And then Multnomah County built a jail there called Rocky Butte Jail. And it was made of the dark basalt of Rocky Butte. Rocky Butte is really amazing. It, it, basalt's usually kind of grayish. This is this deep, rich, black colored. And they built the jail out of that. And there's a quarry there. And there was a jail there. So back in the 80s, when Neil Goldschmidt was the mayor of Portland, they wanted to build uh, I-205. And they needed federal help to do that. So one of the things, legendarily, the mayor said is, well, we can't have prisoners living close to I-205. We have to remove the jail, and we need f federal help to do that. So the jail got moved. They built I-205, and this 38 acres, which had been connected, literally became an island for decades. Who, and, and who has owned that land? Because that becomes obviously uh, interesting and complicated in terms of mm. how do you take that from someone's ownership and, and give it to the public interest. Amazing. Uh, it was owned by ODOT right up until the time we bought it. Um, it, had, uh, it was off limits. There were no trespassing signs all over. And there was no way to get to it because it was literally an island. There was uh, uh, a forest on it. Uh, and there's this rolling, undulating hills, and it was just sitting there. Uh, when they decided to build Airport Max, they built a bicycle pedestrian bridge from Gateway over I-84, uh, and it l was now connected. So the main north-south bicycle trail for Portland runs 16 miles from Clackamas Town Center all the way up to Clark County, and it literally goes through this 38 acres. And so all of a sudden it was connected and it's extraordinarily visible. The number of people that go by or literally through it every year, 65 million visits a year. So it's unbelievably <laughs> visible. 
And 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 so let's let's jump into the story then in terms of you mentioned that you bought not you but an yeah. entity bought the land. How, how much does thirty eight acres like that cost? <laughs> it was an amazing story. So long story short, a long story not so short. Um, so we couldn't find anything for a park, and this thirty eight acres is sitting there. And I just had this wild idea. Well, who the heck owns it? Well, it's owned by ODOT. And so I researched, so who can I talk to at ODOT? And there was this gentleman named Matthew Garrett, who was the head of Region 1 for ODOT. He's now the head of all of ODOT. And I looked him up, and I called him. I said, sir, you don't know me, but you own this 38 acres there. Would you be willing to put it to a higher public use than what's sitting there now? Long story short, he says, we've been asked to do a lot of things. TriMet wanted to build a truck maintenance facility on or a rail car maintenance facility on it, this and that. But he said, and I'm guessing that the stars just aligned or, or something. And he said, I'll tell you what, this is an interesting idea. Let's talk. And ultimately, he went through an 11-year process, uh, 40 different entities, 40 different entities, public, private, and nonprofit, came together, signed commitments, and ultimately, the city of Portland agreed, we'll step up and buy it. But ODOT was real good to us because there's some rules that went with it. Because federal money went into the construction of I-205, no private development could happen on it. And so it couldn't be a profit-making deal. Um, and so they were real good to us in terms of what the city ultimately bought it for. And that's how we acquired it. And, and there was some crowdfunding as part of this as well. Is that right? Can you talk about that a bit? Two crowdfunds. When we didn't know, at least I didn't know what a crowdfund was, <laughs> uh, there's this group called Oregon Solutions. Uh, I'm not sure if you're familiar with it, but they were originally created by the legislature and the governor. Now they're independent on their own. But what they do is they work around the state helping community projects happen by cobbling together public-private partnerships. And... They had heard about Gateway Green, and they had helped us get these 40 entities together. They came to us one day and said, you know what a crowdfund is? I said, is that like Kickstarter or what's that? And they said, well, it's used now mostly for for-profit things like, hey, you want to start a radio station or you want to create a movie or something. Okay. But it isn't necessarily used for community projects. Uh, we want to see if we could use it and explore it to raise money for projects around the state. And we need a beta project to try to learn. Would Gateway Green be willing to do it? And we'll pay for it. Really? Okay. Mm -hmm. Well, we'll do that. They brought a so-called expert in from Philadelphia. I mean, an expert who had done these before to counsel us. And we figured it out as we went along. So the first one, they counseled us 1% of all crowd funds make it to $100,000, 1%. They did their research and said, we think this has a chance of being part of the 1% if you do X, Y, and Z. And a crowdfund, if you've been involved, they look from the outside like this most casual, let's just put up a video and money will flow into us. Mm -hmm. It was like a full-time job. For a 33-day crowdfund, it, for months, it was unbelievable, but it worked. And we exceeded our goal, and we raised 123000 bucks, which was really hard because usually you're raising money to make something, build something, create something. We needed the money to do the planning we were being required to do to be able to take the next step. Son of a gun, it worked, 
And then we ultimately did a second one that put us over the top. And it raised $114,000. And it worked. This is the Nonprofit Hour on X-Ray FM. We are talking with Ted Gilbert, who is a board member for Friends of Gateway Green, and Jocelyn Godey Coral, who's a spokesperson for the Northwest Trail Alliance. Jocelyn, let's talk a little bit about how did Northwest Trail Alliance... Well, first off, I, I think the name says what you do, but mm -hmm. can you, can you uh, give me a little bit more information? Yeah, our organization, the Northwest Trail Alliance, is our mission is to um, enhance and maintain and expand access to off-road cycling um, in the greater Portland region. So we're talking about, so Gateway Green, I should infer, is going to have mountain biking. It is going to have mountain biking, which is great. Super exciting uh, project here in town that we're um, happy to be supporting the Friends of Gateway Green in. Yeah, I mean, because certainly, I mean, not every park wants mountain biking. Uh, well, not every park is appropriate for mountain biking. And, and definitely parks are, uh, they're for the neighbors. So, um, well, a lot of them are. There are some regional assets, bigger parks. Forest Park is a good example of that, uh, which is meant to serve the community of, as a whole, the whole city. Um, but a lot of other parks are, are really focused on um, the most local residents to enjoy them. And so um, it's valuable to have their perspective on what's going on there. But yeah, as I said, not every park is appropriate for, for mountain biking. There are a lot that are, though. And, and, and why is Gateway Green? Why will it be? Can I, should I use present or future tense for Gateway Green? Uh, there's trails out there right now, right. so present is totally acceptable. Yeah. What what makes that a good park for mountain biking? Um, well, as Ted was saying, it's 38 acres, so that's good room for us to um, have some cross-country style trails that loop back on themselves. So we don't really need too much land to be able to build um, a fun um, system of trails that folks can kind of go around um, and around on. And we have, what, three and a half miles out there now? It's about, I guess, three miles of trail yeah. and more to come. And and talk to me a little bit about that process. Again, I think it's it's most people arrive and a park is already in existence and the trails are there. But somebody has to decide where the trails go. Somebody has to clear off what I assume were sort of decades of growth uh, that had just been left uh, a, yeah, a strange site... wild spot in the middle of uh, the, the <laughs> asphalt. The site was in rough shape for sure. Um, yeah, it takes a, a lot of work and a lot of coordination to plan and then implement a trail plan on a site. Um, yeah, step one is is getting some professionals out there to get a lay of the land and understand how we can best utilize the space and the land to build sustainable trails that are going to last through the rainy season that we have here in in Portland. Um, and then we get to work clearing, felling trees if that's necessary, pulling ivy, blackberries, mm -hmm. uh, so many blackberries that we had to pull out of that space. Um, and then we hired professional trail builders to, well, we for uh, Friends of Gateway Green um, to go out there. And it's a mix of um, hands-on, you know, getting getting with the shovels and the plantskis and and uh, pulling the dirt away and using it to shape features and turns. Um, but we actually also used a machine out there, too. Um, we have a trail building machine. It looks like a small bulldozer that can just um, cruise right along a hillside and cut in a trail, uh, roughly cut in a trail. It takes a lot of uh, finalizing to, to get it up to speed. But Do you, do you remember, uh, rolling back the clock a little bit, sure. do you remember the first time that you showed up at, this, at the, <laughs> the location? And can you describe what you saw and, and uh, on a scale of optimistic to pessimistic, where you would place it? Uh, I am a generally optimistic person. So I was up 
definitely level 10, 11, like right from the start. Interestingly, um, cyclists have known about Gateway Green for a while, like since the, the multi-use path that Ted was mentioning has been cut through. Cyclists use that pathway to move around and um, they notice this big open green space and um, and bikes have been riding in there for, for years. So you'll see um, old trails, um, you know, that weren't properly built. It's just kind of they took off and um, explored around the property, see what was going on out there. So, um, but knowing knowing that that was already a valuable resource for off-road cyclists and cross cyclists and other types of, of folks that ride bikes, um, and then realizing that we now have the potential to mold it into something that's really going to be functional, sustainable, and it's going to last and be a really valuable asset to the community, to the greater community, um, was so exciting. So yeah, hundred uh, percent optimistic from right from the go. When when is the last time that Portland uh, added a park this size? Do either yeah, of you know? That's a great question. There's another park I'm familiar with in East Portland. It's three acres there's eights or twelves but in terms of this size and to be specific it's 38 acres but officially the city of portland purchased 25 of the 38 now we're going to get to mm. use more than the 25 but if if uh, odot ever wants to expand the right away for i-205 or someday if light rail goes north to clark county um, they've provided for that. So, uh, but it's technically it's 25 acres, still a chunk of real estate in urban Portland. Yeah, absolutely. And, and, you know, I, I think especially at this point in Portland's history where real estate is increasingly valuable mm -hmm. and scarce to, to grab 25 plus acres for public use is incredible. And I want to talk a little bit more about East Portland or that, section of east portland that is what what do you think this does in terms of recentering where portland is you know you hit the nail right on the hill metro says in 1998 which is when i started to turn some attention to gateway metro had projected that by the year 2017 gateway would be the most accessible location in the entire region and that seemed like a long way off. And son of a gun, it's 2017. Uh, it's served by two interstate freeways, three max light rail lines going in three directions. And what's happening, primarily because of the search for more affordable housing, is people are migrating east. And they've now recognized that East Portland, which most people define as east of I-205 to the city boundary, um, is where they have a chance of either finding more affordable rents or to be able to own a home. So it surprises a lot of folks. 40% of Portland's school-aged children now live in East Portland. 40%. And I would argue that it's probably the most diverse area of the entire state of Oregon. The number of languages they speak at David Douglas High School is staggering. Estimated somewhere in the 70s. I can't even name 70 languages. <laughs> Um, and it's astounding. And they're doing a fabulous job. The percentage of free and reduced lunches at David Douglas High School, 89%. And there's this migration moving there. Well, we can either ignore it, we can either uh, uh, just let it find its own way, or we can celebrate it and try to take advantage of it and harness it and show what really cool things it has. But one of the things it didn't have was park and open space. And the combination of all these kids and people. And no place to get outside is not a great combination. 
Yeah, and it, it really strikes me. It's it's one of those what if moments uh, that that Portland seems to have had uh, peppered throughout its history. I mean, you look at Pioneer Square; that could have easily been a parking lot. That's right. It was. Uh, it was a parking lot, or it could have been a, a private park. Was had been had been uh, petitioned for. This this what if moment that could have just been a truck yard, as you said, and no public real access to it. This seems to uh, philosophically line up with what Portland wants to be, uh, but also that that takes a lot of effort sometimes to create history. Mm. I, I mean, does do either of you feel like you are creating history here? <laughs> uh, what's interesting, this literally was a grassroots effort. It was a couple people with an idea that went to another person and went to another person and went to it, and all of a sudden the momentum built. Um, I'd be lying if I said I had this grand vision that it was going to become this regional destination for off-road cycling, <laughs> outward bound, all these other activities. I didn't. Um, but this cycling community in particular is so organized and so passionate that when we hooked up with them, it was just a natural. And it has built such a momentum that we couldn't have envisioned otherwise. But it was a bottom-up experience. It was not a top-down. But having said that, if the city of Portland... ODOT, uh, Metro stepped up big time to make that and ultimately saw the opportunity. And they've been fabulous to work with. Uh, it's, it's, it's just, it's so great to hear such a success story. <laughs> it really is. I, I, I don't know how else to say it. Um, it's a long time coming. So, yeah, it's great. So what, what next? There's a, a quote unquote soft opening June 24th. What does that mean? Yeah, it's called the Gathering at Gateway Green, and we're going to be um, kind of the primary feature of that event is showcasing uh, Dirt Lab. And Dirt Lab is the name for the um, pre-build out at Gateway Green. Um, so last fall, we got the go-ahead from Parks to um, start doing some development out there as a means to activate the green space and, and open up a yeah a safe place for all of these kiddos that Ted was mentioning could could get out and play. So through the winter, um, we've been building trails out there um, in the process that I was uh, telling you about earlier, and um, they're just about ready to go. We've been waiting for the rain to taper off so that everything sets up really nicely, um, and June 24th is, is the date. And it'll be more than just cycling events. We're going to have a, a bunch of community support. Um, we'll have a, run, a running race yep. that morning. Is that correct? What, um, what else are we going to have out there that day, Ted? So... Uh, my guess is that ultimately Gateway Green will be known mostly for its off-road cycling. But it's going to be more than that. It's going to be a place to walk or run. It's going to be the home cross-country course for Park Rose High School, which doesn't have one. So there'll be running events there. We ultimately, in a future phase, are going to have a children's nature play. So kids from all over can come and get their hands dirty building things and so forth. We're restoring the forest, as Jocelyn said. So habitat mm -hmm. restoral. Uh, restoration is one of our priorities. That was one of the things that Metro really wanted to see with the help they've provided. We want to use this. You know, there is a controversy in Portland about can nature and off-road cycling coexist? And one of the earliest supporters of this idea was a gentleman uh, named Jim Labby from then. He was with the Audubon Society. And he looked at this as a test laboratory to be able to use and figure out best practices to demonstrate to all that the active recreation and habitat restoration can work together and use this as 
to demonstrate best practices that could be used elsewhere. So it's going to be a lot of things to a lot of people. Ted Gilbert is a board member for Friends of Gateway Green, and Jocelyn Godey Coral is a spokesperson for Northwest Trail Alliance. Hey, congratulations to both of you. It's really, it's really <laughs> exciting. It is such a fantastic addition to Portland. Uh, just wrapping it up. So, how do people get to Gateway Green? Yeah. Um, well, well, first off, you should find us online. Um, gatewaygreen dot. I'm sorry, gatewaygreenpdx.org. Um, there's a bunch of information there about the park, its history, where it's going, and directions, specific directions on how to get there. Um, but head up to the Gateway Transit Center by whatever means you can drive there. There's um, some parking garages. Take the max uh, ride or walk, and then head north on the I-205 multi-use path, about a half mile. Gateway Green is on the right-hand side there. Fantastic. And we were going to close out with a beautiful day from you, too. Thanks so much for having us. Thank you. Absolutely. The heart is a bloom Shoots up through the stony ground There's no room If you're just tuning in, you're listening to the Nonprofit Hour on xray.fm, brought to you by the Media Institute for Social Change, a public interest media lab that works to inspire, empower, and engage emerging media producers. Up next, we will listen to a report by Barb Seaman, a graduate of the Media Institute's Radio U program. In this piece, Barb takes us out into the gorge for a hike with the Cape Horn Conservancy. On a rainy day in February, volunteers with the Cape Horn Conservancy are planting native ferns and Oregon grapes on part of an old hiking trail. It's on a bluff next to a waterfall that looks out over the Washington side of the Columbia River. I remember the first time I came here. It was a day just like this, and we had found that trail. Muddy and slippery, it went straight down to this small grassy area, then it just dropped off. I was completely freaked out that one of my young sons was going to slide right off the edge. Sue Rivers is one of the volunteers, and she remembers coming down that trail, too. Uh, this is before they had the, the little uh, viewpoint, uh -huh. and you would have gone right on over. It, it was that dangerous. So those who know about it know how to get down just fine. The old trail was part of a patchwork of smaller unofficial trails in the area. Now it's the Cape Horn Trail, a seven and a half mile loop that climbs up and over the bluffs of Cape Horn and then back down to the scree fields just over the river. Dan Huntington helped put this trail together years ago, but he says it wouldn't be here without the volunteers of the Cape Horn Conservancy to take responsibility for it. And without that, uh, probably the Forest Service would have by now just shut it down and decommissioned it. Dan is a realtor in Skamania County. He fell in love with the landscape and moved here in the early 1990s. But one disappointment for me was that I was an avid hiker and all the developed trails were on the other side of the river and living in Prindle, I was actually farther from good hiking than I had been living in northeast Portland. Those were the days before Google Maps and GIS. So Dan spent a lot of time at the assessor's office studying the area's property maps. And I realized that there was a nearly continuous link of public lands from Washougal to Stevenson, and the, with the biggest gap being at Cape Horn. 
and I sort of fantasized a little bit about what that there could be there. This was in the then in 1996, a client brought him high up to a spot that's now known on the trail as Pioneer Point. And here's this sweeping vista of Cape Horn. Um, it's a promontory, a rock pillar that's sort of separate, sticking out from the rest of the bluff. And you look up the gorge and you can see Multnomah Falls. You look to the southwest and you can look down on the Cape Horn, what we call the half bridge, where Highway 14 hugs the cliff. And it's just a spectacular setting. And that's when I really had that moment where I felt um, I needed to get this publicly accessible one way or another. It was kind of like I started a landslide and then I could stand back and watch it go down the mountain. It was a massive and slow-moving landslide. It took about 20 years and it was a long, complicated process. It involved various different land trusts, donors, realtors, and environmental groups like the Friends of the Columbia Gorge, working with the government to piece together enough continuous land to be able to make a trail. But some people couldn't wait, and they went out and began building trails on their own. The Forest Service was not happy. This is where the Cape Horn Conservancy became so important to the story. Here's Teresa Robbins, who's been their president since it became official in 2010. They don't mind if you walk on their land. But when people were going out and creating trails, I mean, and cutting um, material, vegetation and stuff, that's not allowed. That's not what you're supposed to do with public land. So uh, we had to figure out how to build trust again. One of the things that the Forest Service absolutely required before they approved the trail was that we had a local group, a committed group that would caretake the trail because they just don't have the resources now. But I, I think it's probably best to just leave it there. So, so along with her husband, Keith Brown, Teresa got busy learning all about trail maintenance. They spent two years training with the Washington Trails Association and then started holding what they call work parties to keep up the trail. And so initially it was, a lot of it was just Keith and I, and then maybe, then it grew to like two or three more. Now, it's uh, pretty amazing this last couple of years that we're getting groups of, of 10, 15. That'd be great. That'd be perfect. Uh, so we've got the we've got a really good trail tread now, and we and we've rerouted several parts of the trail. In the few years since it formed, the Cape Horn Conservancy has accomplished some amazing things. They've built bridges over creeks and stairs on steep parts of the trail. They rerouted it in some areas to protect sensitive species, and built a kiosk at the trailhead with maps and other information for hikers. They even hired a stonemason and did the manual labor to build two lookouts on the bluffs. So now hikers can take in that expansive view without being afraid they're going to fall off the edge. I want to say, and maybe I can say it unabashedly proud, that it's probably the best maintained trail in the gorge. And that was our goal. There's still a lot of public land between Washougal and Stevenson. So maybe it's time to work with the Forest Service to set some new goals and plan some more trails.
All right, that was, of course, Jackson Brown, uh, the song Running on Empty, which has a, a, a bit of a uh, keen, sardonic meaning. Uh, we are talking to John Burke, who's the executive director of Farmers Ending Hunger. Uh, Oregon is a, uh, is a hungry state at times. John, how are you doing? I'm doing great. Thanks for having me here this morning, Phil. And uh, that's, a, that's a true that statement. Uh, Oregon has been on the, the hunger radar for 10, 15 years. Uh, can't explain all the reasons why, but when those numbers are tracked, uh, the food insecurity questions or, are asked, Oregon comes up. And uh, we've been all the way up to number one. National, these are national statistics. Every state is looked at. And we've been number one. We're so we're somewhere in the 14, 15 that range, but for some things like childhood hunger, we're up in the top five. So it's something that's not going away. It's it's a big issue, in Oregon. Yeah, these I mean and these are not statistics that Oregon wants to be in the top five or ten for. And there's yeah. there's such an irony. I, Oregon uh, has such a draw because of its food. I mean, both mm -hmm. you know the Oregon Trail coming out because it's mm -hmm. the Willamette Valley is so incredibly agriculturally rich. Mm -hmm. And then more recently with the uh, the restaurant booms in, in the yep. cities. Uh, yet, mm -hmm. uh, you know, I, I, I don't know the exact statistics, but I remember a few years ago, it was one out of three Oregon children missed a meal mm -hmm. every day. Yep. It's uh, one out of five Oregonians, if you look at the non-repeated numbers of people accessing the Oregon Food Bank Network, one out of five uh, in Oregon access a food box at some time during the year. And yeah, those are not statistics we're proud of. And, and yeah, we're Portland and we're the foodie capital of the world. And uh, yet uh, we have all this bounty around us. And uh, yet there are lots, you know, there's a million food boxes a year are handed out uh, the last two years in a row in, in Oregon. So that's, uh, it, is, uh, it is a real uh, paradox. And it's alarming to people like myself that have been involved in agriculture all my life and others that are involved in ag and farmers when you kind of made aware of that. Uh, it's like, well, that's really odd, but maybe there's something we can do about it. So that's kind of the flip side of it is that because of that bounty and that, that agricultural uh, co production capacity, the capacity that we have, there is the ability to provide uh, excess and, and even some planned production to go directly to the food bank network. Right, we're, we, we don't live in a desert, we're not living in Nevada, where, which, where food production is obviously a lot more difficult, but mm -hmm. that said, it's, it's, it's not, it's a persistent problem. Hunger is a persistent mm -hmm. problem. It's not an easy mm -hmm. equation to solve. So I wanna, I wanna spend yeah. a little time talking about that. So the mechanics mm -hmm. of farmers ending hunger mm -hmm. is uh, farmers and ranchers mm -hmm. donate a portion of their, their harvest. Is mm -hmm. that correct? That's, that's the basic underlying idea. When, when uh, a couple of people first thought of the idea, this is about mm, 2005, Oregon was actually number one in food insecurity then. And so the founder, uh, Fred Ziari, who's involved in agriculture, uh, learned about this. And bottom line, he, he came to the conclusion, who better to feed hungry people than farmers? So he started talking to growers that he knows. And he's pretty much out the lower Columbia Basin, Hermiston, Pendleton, Umatilla County area is his base of production. And there's tremendous agricultural production out there. I pretty much come from the, the valley side all my career. So you put those together and, and we've got this agricultural production. We started asking growers, uh, hey, there's this issue and there's a way you can help. 
And we're not going to try and ask any one of you to, to solve the, the whole hunger problem, but if a lot of us get involved, a lot of uh, smaller size donations can add up. And so we started taking it out. And nobody that Fred talked to or that I've talked to has ever said, no, nah, it's none of my business. Um, they get the idea of feeding hungry people. So we set up a mechanism of, uh, of going, working along with Oregon Food Bank, finding those products that, that are really on their wish list, and going out and reaching out to those producers and, in some cases, the processors that it takes to get them ready to go into a food box. So I, I want to talk about the mechanics in a bit. I, I want to hover on this, this idea of reaching out to farmers. Mm-hmm. I, I mean, we're talking about farmers that are stretched across uh, vast territory. Mm-hmm. I mean, so mm-hmm. you're, you're in your pickup truck driving out to the farm, <laughs> knocking on the, on the door or on the yeah, tractor. and, and uh, what? That, that happens sometimes, yeah. Um, one of the, a good example, the first, when I first started, I, I had retired from Oregon State University Extension Service. So I knew a lot about agriculture. I was involved in a food bank uh, board down in Salem. So I kind of I got tapped on the shoulder, you know, John, you need to do this. We can hire somebody. So first thing we did in March of 2007, we had a, a lunch meeting over in Hermiston. The guys over there invited in the, the appropriate, you know, the growers that, that they knew that they thought might be interested. And so they... Just before this lunch, we were sitting down to lunch. One of the one of the growers. It's a pretty large scale operation. Tony Amstad, Amstad Produce, uh, big produ- potato producer. Uh, in the conversation, he said, "Well, say, can can you guys use potatoes?" Well, you know, the answer is yes. And they gave us a million pounds of potatoes last year. Now that grew up over years, but they're a large producer. These are high quality. They're actually processed and, and packaged over in Sherwood right in the metro area, and when they're made available, Oregon Food Bank sends by a truck and picks them up, a million pounds of potatoes last year. They have the capacity to do that. They have the interest and desire to help out. But it was just, we're at a lunch meeting, and I had never met them before, and it was just kind of get in the same room, get the right people in the room, and uh, they, they, they could do it. And where have you seen that generosity coming from? I mean, is this a matter of state pride? Is this a matter of wanting to be part mm-hmm. of the community? Well, is, is, there, is there a common theme? The, the common theme is that they, they don't want to take credit for it. They don't, uh, nobody's ever asked me what the tax consequences are. Uh, they just get it. And when asked specifically, I've had a couple of uh, growers, in fact, uh, Jeff Urbach, the manager of uh, of uh, Amstead Produce, uh, the plant down in Sherwood, uh, family, part of the family, uh, asked on camera, on, on TV, well, doesn't this cost your bottom line? Yeah, yeah, it does. Well, why do you do this? And his answer a couple of different times has just been because it's the right thing to do. I can't get any more out of them. You know, they, some of them uh, feel it's, it's, you know, they've been blessed, they have a great life, they need to give back. Others, I'm sure it's their religious conviction that, that, that you do this. Others just uh, get the idea. When, when, when made aware that the, the, they, they all know who Oregon Food Bank is, great reputation, great organization there that can handle it, um, when they get, some of them get started on a smaller scale and realize that Oregon Food Bank and the network and how we handle this make it as simple as possible, as easy as possible for them, and we sort of build them into programs. Uh, yeah, it comes off the bottom line. There is now Oregon, I have to say, that Oregon passed uh, a few, about three years ago, four years ago now, a uh, tax credit so that a grower can get a tax credit just for Oregon taxes, 15% of the wholesale value of that product. 
nobody, again, nobody's ever asked me about that before they donated. Most of them were donated for several years before that ever came to be. And uh, I'm sure it's, it's a bit of a help to help if they're handling something or having to put it in another package or set it aside or do something with it for us before we pick it up. So um, it's, um, it's just, uh, I, I just say over and over again, I think farmers get the idea of feeding hungry people when they know that that's, that's an issue and there's a, there's a way they can help. This is the Nonprofit Hour on X-Ray FM. I'm talking to John Burke, who is Executive Director of Farmers Ending Hunger. I want to talk some about the, the mechanics. I think that's mm-hmm. really interesting because mm-hmm. you, in a sense, are needing to create a, a different uh, distribution model or distribution channels mm-hmm. instead of going to the Safeways or the Fred Meyer. Suddenly mm-hmm. the food is going to a food bank. Uh, is, is that difficult to set up that, that sort of mechanism? Some, some of the commodities that we get pretty straightforward. The potatoes, the onions, we get a lot of those. They're, they're in a big tote, they're ready to go. Oregon Food Bank just comes and gets them. They're put in that form, truckloads, and we're talking semi-truckloads at a time. Uh, Oregon Food Bank has the capacity to handle those kind of quantities at the warehouse out on the east side of town on Columbia. Some of them, though, are, are a little complicated, and they, we try to get them into a size, package, or form that can go in a food box. So that means shelf-stable or it's in some kind of package. A good example, this last year we, uh, for the first time, brought on uh, quite a large-sized cherry grower over in the Dallas, Orchard View Farms, good friend Ken Bailey over there. Uh, And it's one of those things where uh, he and I have known each other a long time. And I've seen him a few times, three, four, five years ago. So, you know, I see him at things. He knows what I'm doing. And, hey, yeah, we got to talk about cherries sometime. And finally, uh, last year, a year ago, in, in the fall of, of uh, when that had been 15, saw him at a meeting and uh, an event there in the Dalles and said, you know, we really need to talk. And so we did. We came back out after the first year, talked to him. They had just implemented a brand new optical digital processing line. So I think they felt a little more comfortable with it. And finally, I said, yeah, yeah, we can do this. The whole company, uh, his niece is the uh, CEO, came on board. And what happened, the way it works, they sort out. These are their culls, so to speak, but you and I would, bu- would buy them in the store. They're pretty nice looking. They ended up donating over a course of about five, six weeks, 85,000 pounds of cherries. But they're all in big 1,000-pound bulk boxes, bins, totes, whatever you want to call them. And so... We have to find, we track down through Contact Oregon Food Bank, a company that sells, wholesaler of, of uh, uh, these clamshells, the plastic packaging. So we, Farmers in the Hunger, through our donations uh, that the public gives to us, paid for those clamshells and got those to Oregon Food Bank. And Oregon Food Bank volunteers then packaged, they were four pound fl- clamshells, and they packaged, so whatever, four into 85,000, you know, 20 some odd thousand clamshells went out into food boxes last year in the June, July, August part of the year. So a little bit of, you know, there's some handling. It comes in bulk from the grower. Had to be transported to Oregon Food Bank. We find, we get the clamshells. The volunteers put them in the clamshells. And within a day or, or even quicker, they go right out the same day out to the Oregon Food Bank's network. So that's, that's one that had a couple of steps to it. Yeah, I imagine that. I mean, you have to do some really quick problem solving because, I mean, cherries, cherries don't last They're forever. Perishable, yeah. And uh, we've got a couple others that are a little more complicated. We, uh, we take wheat and make pancake mix out of it. 
and that involves it's uh, milled and blended in Pendleton. It's shipped to Tukwila, Washington, where Continental Mills blends it all together and basically makes Krusty's brand pancake mix for us. So it's done there. They package it up there. It puts it in like a three-pound bag. They have a bag in line, and then Oregon Food Bank comes and gets it, and then volunteers put a label on each one of those bags. Well, we did 216,000 pounds of pancake mix last fall. So uh, there's several steps involved, but we're also talking some large quantities. And so everybody you know, has to line up, and Oregon Food Bank's got to have all enough volunteers to do all that work. So uh, there's, there's, there's other things involved with processing vegetables. We, we do can a lot of vegetables that are donated. Norpac Foods, which is a Sandy Am label, they uh, uh, still can product, and the food banks still want a shelf-stable, last-on-the-shelf kind of a product. So not all the little pantries and people have a, enough freezer space. So we go all the way through to get that product canned. Well, there's, as you can imagine, there's a few steps involved in logistics of making all that happen. And it starts with the grower donating the product, acre by acre, but then uh, working with the processor to get that through and finally uh, get it out to the food banks. So. And, and, and once it's at the food banks, I mean, your, your job is essentially done, yeah. but obviously you, you are interested in seeing the rest of the, uh, the, the process happen, which yeah. is it gets to, to families. Yeah. I mean, you guys have donated over 12 million pounds of food crops in, in about 10 years. Is Even that more. We're more like 20 million. Okay. So probably when, probably something wasn't updated on our website, uh, a little lax of it. But we've we've hit over 20 million pounds in those 10 years. And uh, did a little, almost about three and a half million pounds last year, four million pounds the year before of donated stuff. A big bulk of that is potatoes and onions. We get cattle every month, uh, the wheat donations, vegetables, it's, it's all those things. Uh, the Oregon Food Bank uh, network is 22 regional food banks in Oregon. So every regional area, the metro area, and then everywhere around the state and Clark County, Washington, is part of that network. They have a distribution agreement so that products like ours coming in a large quantity to Portland, uh, there's, a, there's a percentage distribution allotment that's an agreement between all those regional food banks and Oregon Food Bank. And so if uh, a thousand pounds, let's say, of something comes in, a hundred pounds is due to Salem, to Marion Polk Food Share. That's there. They get about 10%. And there's other variations. If there's more available and somebody didn't want some or couldn't, that's traded around. Sometimes uh, the product will stay in a region. Like in Salem, Marion Polk Food Share, Norpac Foods is right close by. So it makes more sense to have the product stay there. And then what can't be used locally then does come up to Portland, to Oregon Food Bank. They have uh, 22 uh, regional food banks. And in our example, the one that I'm most familiar with down in Salem, in Marion Polk Food Share, there's over 100 member agencies, we call them. Those are the soup kitchens, the pantries, the churches, the meal sites. In our two counties, there's 100 sites, agencies we work with, where the food box or the meal actually gets delivered. So it's a pretty involved network. Uh, it, it's very well run, works very well. They communicate, they do follow-up, feedback, certification, all that stuff is done right according to Hoyle, so to speak. And so uh, without that, we, we, we couldn't do this. I mean, it just wouldn't, wouldn't happen. So uh, they're a great partner. And, and I mean, with, 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 with the 20 million pounds of food, with this incredible network of Oregon food banks, excuse the pun, but certainly you must have taken a bite out of 
hunger in Oregon? Well, we've we've helped. We Oregon Food Bank Network altogether does around 90 million pounds of stuff goes out about 45 each year. Each year, 45 to 50 million of that goes through the warehouse in Portland, Oregon Food Bank warehouse in Portland. The rest of it is generated at these regional food banks locally, generated by them mm -hmm. altogether about 90 million pounds. So. You know, we're doing our four million pounds. You know, we're not solving the the demand side of that, but we're bringing in things that they want: locally grown, high quality, fresh, uh, uh, good. Pro you know, the, the things that we're generating are are the kind of things you'd want to have in a you know in a food box: a sack of potatoes, sack of onions, some vegetables, fresh vegetables as much as we can get, fresh fruit as much as we can get. Uh, we generate hamburger from the cattle that are donated. The pancake mix. These are all things that would be really good. In a food. So we've we worked hand in hand with Oregon Food Bank to develop some of these things. Here's some. Right now we're working to uh, develop out. Our, uh, we've we've really established some contacts with the hazelnut industry, and looking to grow those donations and get them you know, whole kernel hazelnuts. Great source of protein. Great food products. Locally grown, and uh, comes in usually, you know, November to January, February, so a good time in the winter to have a product like that. So we're trying to grow up some new things like that, but it take, that takes a lot of coordination and going. So we're always looking for new stuff like that. But it's, uh, it's the right kind of stuff to have in a, in a food box. So, yeah, my board, uh, yeah, wants me to be hauling in 10 million pounds as quick as I can. So, uh, yeah, the, 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 the marching orders are there and the goals are there. We'd like to be doing more, and, and we've grown at a good pace that we can keep up with. So uh, we have to find those funds to help pay for some of that process. Not all of it gets donated. We have to pay for some stuff. And so uh, we need to get out to the public and grow those donations uh, at a pace that we can keep up with the, with the quantities of stuff that's getting donated. This is Phil Bussey. It's the Nonprofit Hour on X-Ray FM. John Burt is the Executive Director of Farmers Ending Hunger. John, let's let's talk about how you arrived in this position. What's, what's, what's your background <laughs> with, with farming and with agriculture? <laughs> I uh, came to Oregon in 1973 to work for Oregon State University, to the extension agent. Uh, so I worked with farmers, in mostly in the, in the Willamette Valley. I worked a year over in Lakeview, central, south central, but then came to the valley and worked with farmers for 30 some odd years. To knew agriculture pretty well. And in, uh, in, in that time in Salem, I uh, had eventually had been asked to and, and join the board of Marion Polk Food Share, which is one of the Oregon Food Bank regional food bank network uh, of the regional food banks in the network, and so I'd been on that board for a little while. So I was at a, a dinner in Portland, and one of the board members, Farmers Ending Hunger, had just sort of been formed up, and they really hadn't gotten too much going, but they had delivered. This is just before I got in, involved. This was in November of, of 2006. They delivered 173,000 pounds of frozen peas. So we got to do something. They got some growers uh, identified. They, they donated the peas. Norpac Foods processed them. They delivered them to Oregon Food Bank. Looked like the model worked. Oregon Food Bank gave them a grant. They could hire somebody. And this Rick Jacobson, who had retired as the CEO just then of Nor Norpac Foods, was on the board. I'd known Rick a long time. And he saw me at this dinner. And he told me, John, John, we, we got some money. We can hire somebody. And pokes me in the, you know, in the chest. You got to do this. So... Uh, I had retired from OSU at that time, and I was thinking, yeah, I, I, there's, I, I, maybe I do need to do this. So that was in 2007. We just finished 10 years, 10 year anniversary, and uh, started out just me, and it's still just me. Uh, I went to their board meeting in December, and it's, 
I probably shouldn't say this in public, but um, we shook hands, and 10 years later, we're still working on a handshake. It's probably not the best business model. but Or, or perhaps it is the best business yeah, model. It's, it, it, when it's working, it's working great, and we all know each other. And, and so we kind of started. I really didn't know where the, after the first year where things were going to go or how we were going to get there. But like I said, that first lunch we had over there, and Tony Amstead said, you want some potatoes? Well, now it's kind of grown from there. So... Uh, it, it's um, that's kind of my background is in ag and a little bit with the food bank uh, network and uh, it, it's just been it's been really good for me I still get to work with farmers and we're doing some good stuff and really good for me is to go out to Columbia Basin get out to Eastern we, we go clear out to Malheur County for some cattle to get stuff donated and some cows over there and uh, working with the growers uh, out the, the Columbia Basin the, the size and scale and scope of agriculture out there is just uh, amazing it's it's so productive uh there is such scale and capacity over there and and yet it's still there's still they may be farming 13 15,000 acres there's still that guy that farmer that lady uh who's who's running the tractor and and making the decisions just like over here on the smaller scale ones that we run into there's still uh good people salt of the earth they they uh, they're they're where our food's coming from so uh, that part's been pretty pretty good for me so it's it's been ten years. Uh, if, if you could travel back uh, to uh, that that first lunch where you got involved, what <laughs> advice would you give yourself about going forward? <laughs> um, I don't know. I I, I I was a little naive, thinking, well, first thing we'll do, we'll sign up those pea growers again. We'll have green, and the, that year the price of grain we got all cockeyed, and, and it got up to almost twenty dollars a bushel. Peas don't pay as much as wheat. There weren't enough peas in the ground. So we dropped, so right off the bat, top of my list, well, well, we'll just take care of those peas again. Didn't happen. There weren't any peas. And so kind of had to scramble and look around and decide, hmm, let's just back off of peas this year. So, okay, what do we do next? So uh, I think uh, being maybe a little naive was probably okay. Uh, just think we're going to make this happen. I think uh, probably uh, the hardest thing I, I think would have been to, for me, it's, it's, a, it's a lot of fundraising. And I had done grant writing and things with the university, but going out and asking the public for money in a concert, you know, concerted effort, I think I uh, should have been a little better informed if I was looking back as to how much time and how uh, the, the learning curve on fundraising, because you know, the, 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 the three R's of, fun, of nonprofits, or three R's, fundraise, fundraise, fundraise. You, you just have to have money to operate and you have to ask the public. And so getting that mindset that it's, it's okay to do that if you're doing something good and you're pretty open and uh, transparent about it so that people trust you, that what you're doing, what you say you're doing, you know, it works, but it's, uh, it's taken more time than I would have thought. And not that I didn't know that's how nonprofits run, but I, it would have been a little nicer to kind of be able to plan and think ahead where the money was going to come from. But we've done okay. I mean, here we are, 10 years later, we're still, still operating. So... Yeah, talk to me a little bit, though, about the fundraising. I mean, you obviously have an interface with uh, the general public on mm -hmm. this issue. I mean, when you go out and ask for money, are people saying, like, well, there's already the Oregon Food Bank. Well, uh, is, is, you know, why, why would we give to you? I mean, what, yeah. what uh, barrier do you find you need to clear to get somebody to give? Well, it's that awareness that we're working hand-in-hand -hand with Oregon Food Bank. They support us. We try to support them in every way we can. And we've added a new element. We, we've 